Hello, everybody. Welcome to Guys 5 Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You're listening to episode 157, and tonight we are continuing the journey through the 1970s horror films and covering the year 1977. So, Frank, um, I'm interested, um, maybe a little bit more than usual in this list, just because in so many different ways, um, it's a really bizarre list. It's kind of like all over the place. Um, I think in terms of, you know, subject matter, quality, um, you know, uh, but all of it very, I think, interesting in a lot of ways and a lot of experimentation going on yeah, um, throughout it. So um, how are you feeling tonight? Uh, pretty good. I enjoyed watching all these movies again, so interested to kind of talk about them. Um, there's a couple things that, well, we'll get into it when we get into the movies. Yeah, I, I enjoyed all this whole list watching it again. Yeah, normally I ask you kind of like, you know, what's going on this year, but um, it, it feels like it's so eclectic that uh, it feels like it's maybe too much to try to talk about on the front of the episode, maybe. Well, there's a lot of stuff that we're not we're not going to get into, um, but that's happening right now. So there's kind of a glut of animal horror movies around this time. Um like Day of the Animals, which is a terrible movie. Uh, Empire of the Ants is this year. Um, Kingdom of the Spiders is this year. Uh, there's a Orca movie that's like a ripoff of Jaws. A um, couple movies that we've talked about in the past that also like, um, uh, like, well, Return to Bogey Creek. We didn't really talk about that, but we talked about um, uh, Legend whatever of Legend of Bogey Creek. Um, so that's the sequel is this year as well um tentacles which is like an octopus horror movie so i think the jaws is kind of like pushed sort of like pushed people in the direction of like the killer animal movies um there's a couple big horror movies that um we've talked about in the past that came out this year so you have um suspiria and rabid are both this year Mm -hmm. um and there's also a couple of like uh, I don't know if smaller is the right word, but, um, uh, oh shit. Fuck. I can't remember which one I was going to talk about. Um, anyway, there's, it, there's actually a bunch of crap this year too, which, um, there's a Mario Baba movie called shock, um, that was finished by or co-directed by his son um shockwaves is this year if you've ever seen shockwaves um shockwaves is you you know the video cover it's like these nazi zombies like rising out of the water basically um it's about this group of people that are oh yeah trapped on an island with these like aquatic zombies it's i have a lot of affection for that movie but it's not like a great movie um and then there's a couple of like giallo like there's one called watch me while i kill which um i like a lot um that's this year but again like i think the five that are on this list are the most interesting to talk about and even though i would suspiria and rabid would both be on this list had we not have already like gone over them right um i think that the five here are more interesting to talk about than those two movies anyway yeah uh Suspiria, if I remember when we talked about that, that was your top five horror of the 70s total. 
um, back before we realized we shouldn't. Um, right. You know. And when I was just trying to get everything in that I could. So. Right. Yeah. So um, I'll, <clears throat> I'll be actually, interesting because I wanted I want you to redo that list like at the very last episode of this year. Um, yeah, and I wouldn't even say that Suspiria makes that list. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe Suspiria is such a good movie. I'd have to think about it. But um, it's also like I think that we've talked about since we've talked about it and its sequel, and we've talked about so much Argento. I don't know how much more you can get out of talking about Suspiria. So right no understood all right um anything else you wanted to cover about this year before we get started well it's the year of my birth so happy birthday thanks <laughs> actually i think every single one of these movies came out after i was born so hmm. this is the first year of the 70s that i've lived through um all the movies so that's something hmm. that is yeah that's interesting um, I was because I was born in January. Just so you know, right? Yes, right, right, yes. Um, maybe <laughs> bless you. Thank you. Um, maybe um, maybe maybe you're just born a couple weeks ago. There's certainly some people on Facebook that that, that thought that somebody was born a couple weeks ago. Um, That's possible. <laughs> but um. Yeah, uh, that was really funny when people were start wishing happy birthday on on Facebook around August. That's just happened to be the day that I created the Facebook page for mm. the podcast three day three years ago. So, uh, well, happy birthday, does yes. All right, so um, start with the doozy. Number five on your list is Japanese movie titled House. It is directed by Nobi Nobuyiko. Obiashi it stars yeah. Kimiko Aikigami, I Matsuboro, and Mike Jimbo. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 79% from audiences. So you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this uh, this horror movie? So the le- definitely the least horrific of the horror movies on this list, and honestly, more of like. Mm, like a psychotronic horror comedy maybe right or a parody of horror mm-hmm. um the basic premise of the movie is that there's this uh, young girl who's on her summer vacation and is going to spend time with her aunt in her aunt's house and see her aunt for the first time in like 10 years um because she was supposed to go somewhere with her father and her father went and did something else um i don't remember exactly like how that plot plays out because it's like ridiculous the way that they present it to you um so she takes her this group of friends that she has from school and they go to this house and they're waiting for their teacher um togo i guess right is his name uh, to come arrive um who uh the main character is sort of like in love with um there's like a i don't know spring autumn crush thing going on there um so they go to this house and there's all this weird shit that happens when they get there um and each of them is sort of a representation of a different maybe like stereotype of young japanese women uh so there's the one gorgeous who's really obsessed with like her looks and her beauty um there's kung fu who's kind of like the um tough you know like defends everybody with her martial arts 
Um, there's Prof, who's really smart and kind of figures things out. Um, Fantasy, who's always imagining things and kind of like almost has like some sort of like precognitive ability. Um, Mac, who is uh, likes to eat, and um, Sweet, who's just really like naive and innocent, and then Melody, who likes to you know play music. Um, so these girls go to this house. Um, pretty early on, Mac is beheaded when she goes to try and eat some food. Um, and then over the course of the movie, the girls are dispatched in different ways by these forces that live in the house. And they find out that the aunt is actually has been dead for a period of time. Um, and it's her ghost that's like inhabiting this house. And she died while she was waiting for um, her lover or husband who had gone off to war and had never returned. Although they make a point of saying that he wasn't killed in the war, he just never came back. Um, so eventually, uh, fuck, I can't remember which girl is the only one that's left. I think it's Fantasy, right? Is the one that's left at the end. Um, and then Gorgeous and the Ant are kind of revealed to be like one and the same person, sort of. And um, there's a coda to the movie where I don't know. I, I I couldn't tell who the actress was. Like I've never known. But this one, this lady comes in this convertible and pulls up and um, goes to the house. And now the house is like more of, like because it's this almost like Americanized, like haunted mansion style, like building when they first go into it. Um, and when she goes back, uh, gorgeous is there in a kimono and opens up like this traditional style like Japanese, like sliding door, um, what you would think of as like a samurai era house. Um, and then she bursts on fire, the lady in the uh, the convertible, because when the girls are hungry, they're going to wake up and eat you, basically. Right. So so it's really hard to explain like a lot of things. That it, that, this is a movie that would be good for the spin chagrin, like just talking about in sequence what's for, happening in these for, scenes, right. because there's a lot of ridiculous things. Yeah. Um, when the movie so the movie was written um by uh obayashi right mm -hmm. um and he couldn't get it made like he tried to get people to direct and no one wanted to direct it uh it was a toho which is one of the largest um production companies in japan especially in the 70s um and they just like they couldn't get anybody to make it so they sat on it for a couple of years and he finally convinced them like let me make this movie so let him make it um and they hated it and it got critically savaged in Japan, but then ended up being like this huge commercial success. Hmm. Like audiences in Japan loved it. Um, and it was, I had never, I had heard of this movie just from reading like about like Japanese horror and whatever, but I had never seen this movie until 2009 or 10 uh, Criterion released an edition of it. Hmm. Um and so I saw it for the first time and I didn't know what to think the first time I saw it. I was like, cause I was expecting the more traditional, you know, like Kwaidan or Jingoku, like seventies Japanese horror. And instead sure. you get this ridiculous, I don't even know what to call it. Like fever dream almost thing of that doesn't make sense half the time. And um, so I've actually watched this movie maybe five or six times since the initial time I saw it. Okay. Um, and I think I have an idea of what this movie is about. And I'm going to talk about that. But the other important thing to talk about in this movie is the innovation and special effects that um, Obayashi does in this film. 
um, and a lot of things that would go on to be influential later um, in terms of um, superimposing images and, uh, you know, double negative images and um, altering the film. And then what's actually described as some of the most early digital effects in a movie um, with using, I don't know how they did it, but like basically using, I don't know if it was computers, but some sort of digital imagery to create effects on the screen like as you're seeing it um over what the actresses were doing in the movie um there's one really particularly famous scene i guess among like fans of the film where uh melody is sitting at a piano and she's playing a piano and as she's playing the keys the, it's almost like tron kind of the way the keys like light up under her fingers um and then they become electrified mm -hmm. and then she gets eaten by the piano eventually mm -hmm. um but just some really like it's got a very it's it's almost disney-esque sometimes yes. in the way it's filmed uh, it has the feeling of something like 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 the rescuers or uh sword in the stone kind of like in the way that the images look i would um, say especially with some of the animated stuff the animated stuff feels like well maybe all this time period like 60s almost like i'm thinking of like uh the ichabod crane sure like yeah stuff yeah and he changes it it's so jarring when you first watch this movie because so so little of it makes sense immediately the first time you see it. Mm -hmm. So it's really repeated viewings to kind of let you catch like certain things. So there's some really brilliant camera work in this movie and really impressive cinematography. And it just doesn't feel like it sometimes because there's also so many things that are just visually jarring when you see them. Like he'll do stuff in this really rudimentary slow motion um, it's almost like a stop motion animation with live action people where it's like rapid jump cuts while they're moving. So you see a move and then it like cuts to it's like almost like cutting like five or six frames out in between like action. Yeah. And it gives us this really weird like stilted feel to it. There's a lot of things in terms of so it's all filmed on sets, obviously. So there's a lot of things they do with the backgrounds at times to make it feel like naturalistic and then at times like almost no theater you know where it's very staged and very kabuki-esque um and in, including cutting between like different i think like film stock at different points and different exposures to give scene like within a scene you'll have images that are completely different from each other and almost like film styles that are completely different so all that being said, here's my theory about this movie. In the late 60s, there was a movement in Japan um, that was spearheaded in part by uh, Mishima. If you're familiar, the writer, author, playwright. Okay. To basically combat the growing infatuation with Western democracy and capitalism. And the idea was that the youth of japan was becoming soft and was losing their national pride and their sense of nationalism and so mishima wanted to restore like the glory of the emperor basically in japan so there's a lot of very pro pro military pro nationalistic um sentiment in some parts of japanese art and culture at this time and there's, we, we've actually kind of talked about this before, I think, with maybe some Abe stuff.
but um mm -hmm. there's a counter movement to that which is very embracing of the idea of building like western democracy and becoming more modern and sort of turning their back on the really pro-military pro-imperialistic ideas of japan of the 40s and 50s which led to basically you know the the destruction of japan almost in terms of um uh, hiroshima and nagasaki and then you know just like mm -hmm. the destruction of their economy and basically having to become a protectorate of america for a couple decades where they were almost colonized by american soldiers for a long time mm -hmm. um and if you watch a uh, seijun suzuki movies in the 50s and in 60s and 70s he has a lot of stuff where he looks at it almost similar to what i'm the point i'm going to make with house um but from a much more like realistic perspective so i think what i think what obayashi is doing here is making an anti-war movie and an anti-nationalism movie and hiding it under the auspices of a horror movie and that's why he doesn't take it seriously the horror aspects and i think a lot of it has to do with the idea that the the that auntie is waiting for her man to return from the war like she's waiting for the return of this like this national pride you know mm -hmm. this guy this kind of like this idealistic idea of the man that you never really see um and it's the same thing with the little girls so they're waiting for their teacher they're waiting for this person to come that's going to guide them and you know they have like these rudimentary like sexual fantasies about this this idea idealized version of a man right <clears throat> and so they're all just kind of again they're stereotypical representations i think of maybe what he would consider to be like the folly of youth and also the stereotype of like the japanese woman at that time and so it's basically each of them gets devoured by this idea represented by the ante and also by gorgeous you know because they're basically the mm -hmm. same person of this return to this national pride that's never going to happen you know that eventually they just get consumed by the idea and it ends up like killing them and Makes all of them fall victim to the thing that they represent that's kind of this you know because melody isn't playing modern music in the 1970s she's playing this like jangly you know traditional style like piano tune right you know gorgeous wants to dress up in kimonos with like the traditional mm -hmm. style um i think kung fu is this idea of like i don't even i, I don't know what that represents so i think she's the one that she, i mean because she lasts the longest and she's essentially the one that ends up like destroying the house with her disembodied legs like karate kicking a portrait of a cat um right and if that's not an interesting then you should you should go watch this movie <laughs> um but he was very anti-war and very anti-nationalism mm -hmm. and i think that's that's the point that this movie is trying to make in a way that doesn't get it like savaged by people initially like in the outset because you know it doesn't come right out and say those things and this is just my bullshit armchair whatever like historical analysis of the time but i know that so mishima died in 70 but the that mindset like that movement kind of carried on beyond him and he almost became like a martyr for that cause because you know i mean it's just like neo-nazism and kind of like the rise of like proto-fascism in italy for a while where you know these people like look at this glory time where their country was 
you know one of the pillars of the world and then they get destroyed and so mm-hmm. it's almost like in america now you know you have people that are kind of like rallying beyond this false idealism of some culture that maybe never even existed or certainly didn't exist for everyone in the country of sure. like you know we got to take back the past we got right. to go but you know it's always like it was great sure. right to return to family values or whatever and i think that a movie like house is showing that that's ultimately self-destructive um it just does it in the most ridiculously weird way uh, and if you're watching it to watch a straight horror movie um unless you have a really like broad sense of humor i think you might be a little disappointed in it but i think the movie looks beautiful um it makes me laugh when i watch it uh, now that i kind of like over the past you know whatever decade have sort of reassessed it a number of times i think i think i actually kind of enjoy it more you know i think i really uh, even if my analysis isn't right i think it makes me appreciate it a little more and i think that if you're a fan of experimental cinema and you know you can again kind of just take things tongue-in-cheek and just kind of watch it to watch it i think that um i think you're gonna enjoy this movie so no that's really insightful i mean i i don't know as much about japanese history as you do but i mean it sounds accurate having watched the movie twice um in my life and as soon as you start talking i was like okay yeah like i can i I could start putting some pieces together myself i actually Uh, tried to find some criticism to support that and i couldn't really i mean i did a cursory cursory search of it but i couldn't find anything so i'd actually be curious to see if there's any interviews with um obayashi where he talks about those kind of things yeah it would almost be yeah it would it's why to some degree i'm starting to i'm starting to appreciate those idea of deep dives and stuff like that a little bit more with certain movies um there's also there's a couple other things in the movie that i think kind of support my idea and one of it is how ridiculous and ineffective the police are in this movie um, where they can't even find the place that they're supposed to go because maybe that place doesn't exist anymore. And they're just a bunch of like dudes that are eating ramen noodles until they get the call. And then they're right. just these goofballs in a car. And when you watch stuff, especially like watching Suzuki stuff, um, the police are certainly represented as being like moderately incompetent at times, especially like the layman, like police officers. Um, and, and there's also a certain hypersexual is it, it a criticism i think of the hypersexualization of young women in this movie in the sense that whenever they're around a man the man like the one man that they interact with the watermelon seller um in the village before they get to the house he's a cretin um and he's basically like talks about bananas and in asian culture banana is you know like the slang for like a, a dick and especially mm-hmm. like a westerners like like penis um and basically all those police officers end up getting reduced to a big pile of bananas so i think there's like other criticism there of maybe japanese culture um definitely i think of the sexualization of women because they certainly um i mean these were young girls when this movie was filmed so you really have to take that into consideration that you're watching amateur actresses that were like 16 and 17 years old basically when the movie was made um and there is some and there's some incidental nudity there's no like real sexualized nudity at all but right um but really just like how i don't know i think how little the youth of japan was taken seriously at that time um and again i think a lot of it comes back to this idea of this uh 
nationalist identity that uh, people like Mishima had um, that was popular for a long time in Japan. Um, and really the idea that they need to get away from America. And it's also really interesting too, because um, not that it would bear fruit, but I think there also is some criticism of the obsession with technology in Japan at that time in the character of um, Prof, who right. yes. always seems like she's the smartest and always seems like she knows the answer, but ultimately doesn't, she's wrong a lot. And her science fails her because it's the, supernatural elements of the house of, of auntie that kind of win in the end and she has no answer for it so mm-hmm. i don't know if, if obayashi is criticizing you know because this is like 77 the late 70s mid to late 70s is really like the large push in japan of you know where they were having technological advances um and we we talked about this a little bit i think when we were watching a uh, ford versus ferrari because there's some conversation there about it where the japanese yeah. are just so far ahead in terms of technology um that the rest of the world has to try and catch up and i don't know if obayashi is criticizing that or maybe saying that maybe the criticism there is that if you stay with the past like if you refuse to like move to the future that you'll eventually like lose that ability to succeed you know that not embracing like the present you know, it's kind of like a death sentence almost or something. I don't know. So yeah. you almost make me want to watch this again, although I don't know if I could. Um, I, I, there are things I respect about this movie. Um, absolutely. I really like, I like the concept. I like the house itself, like the stage that they film it on. It's almost to me, it reminds me of something like Haunted Mansion or something like that. Sure. Um, and I can see at times where there's a lot of interesting artistry that's happening. You have to be warned if you end up going and watching this. It's To me, it's like a live-action anime. And I think that it's hard for me to see the, the, the ingenuity in some of this um, because he's doing all the things at once including sound the sound in this is maybe the thing that like bothers me the most when i when i watched Mm. it both times is that it never stops like i love the piano tune that plays except for it plays for like i swear 30 minutes of the movie right um and but beyond just the piano playing all the time there's there's so much sound that's going on constantly. There's giggling and there's screaming and there's, you know, just this cacophony of like different musical scores and synth porno sounds. And like, you know, like it's, it's too much. And it like overwhelms my senses um, Mm. when it's both the, the visual and the, um, and the sound combined. It's just, everything's way too much. It's too frantic. It's too, in fact it's trying to be infectious almost i think and it's like um i don't know like it it uh yeah it it bothers me watching it um because it's too live i actually was wondering when i was watching this movie this time if i wonder if that piano melody is something there's some like real cultural significance to it or something right i i 
and i i couldn't find i really was just a cursory search so i don't know like probably with some real research you could find that out but um i felt like there had to be something important to that for them to repeat it so much um but i don't know for sure and the sensory overload part i mean i agree with you but i think it's on purpose you know i think that he's trying to um i think again almost maybe make the point but also drown the point out to like just like a cursory watch of the movie where you might not see the things that he's criticizing because i don't know i mean again it still was a popular mindset in japan this whole like like proto-nationalism you know like glory to the emperor type thing so yeah but who knows i don't know if that's i mean i don't even know if that what i'm saying is true but it just feels like it's feels right it feels like there's too much evidence for you know to be on to something honestly but um yeah i couldn't i can't even get to that point like as soon as you start talking about it, it's like okay yeah like the, what you're saying makes sense but um i don't know, know if i even after two viewings could get to that point so maybe i need to watch it like five or six times and <laughs> maybe i can what like, it takes. maybe i can get down like get past the the but sounds I, I wouldn't tell you that i love this movie but i really appreciate this movie and it's really tough for me to watch it in a single viewing. So if that makes you feel anything. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, no, there's definitely interesting stuff going on, like that this that this person's doing. It, it's just uh I don't know. I don't know if it's something with me or what. Um because I always have issues always with um listening to things like um like listening to people i have to close my eyes if i'm really trying to concentrate because visuals get in the way of me concentrating um so i think when it's like both of them are very um extra <laughs> that um it, it 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 overloads me in some ways um <clears throat> so it's, it's something in part that's particular to me and i think you're right i think he meant to do it on purpose but um it, it certainly doesn't um like i'm like sitting here just thinking about them like scratching my arms um but yeah no it's definitely interesting stuff going on here um but just be warned if you watch it that um you're getting into yeah like a comedy <laughs> more so and and there's definitely a lot of blood in this movie it's just done in a silly way a lot sure. of the time um free on hbo max if you're interested so. yeah because that's part of the tcm right I think it's yes, uh, it classic is. movies. Yeah, it's on. It's on the Criterion Channel too. Or Criterion, yeah, yeah. Criterion right. Network too, I believe. Yeah, Criterion shows up when you. Yeah, yeah. The what is it, Janice? Um, yeah, it's 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 a Criterion release. That's who yeah. put it out. Um, in America initially, yeah, Janice Films. So, all right. Um, number four on your list is. The Incredible Melting Man is directed by William Sachs. It stars Alex Rebar, Bird, D. Benning, and Myron Healy. It has a 7% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 24% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you put it on the list. So also another ridiculous horror comedy in a lot of ways. Um, very simple premise. Uh, we've gone to space as a country and we've sent people to the rings of saturn and while these astronauts are in the rings of saturn some shit happens with the sun and it kills two of the three astronauts and turns a man with an impressive mustache um 
to this monster. So he comes back to Earth and he's hospitalized and he wakes up and <clears throat> realizes that his skin is kind of like slothing off of his body almost. Um, so, of course, he goes crazy and starts murdering people. Um, and the more his skin melts away, the stronger he gets. So trying to find him is scientist and friend, uh, Dr. Ted Nelson, played by Bird Benning in one of the most uniquely acted performances, I think, maybe, in any movie we've watched. Um, one of my favorite scenes with, with DeBenning is... <clears throat> so, Steve West is the astronaut, the incredible melting man of the title. Is on a rampage and is possibly coming to murder the people that he knew in life that were responsible for him going into space. Like, this is something that's been, like, you know posited by the the people in the movie so dr ted nelson whose wife is pregnant and who thinks the incredible melting man might be heading towards his house just goes home and you know gonna, gonna, gonna eat a bowl of soup you know like not not really like you know, it's gonna take his time like have some dinner mm -hmm. you know just kind of like hang out like just casual like oh yeah like you're murdering people eh, it's all right um there's also, and I didn't realize that he was even in it, but um, uh, what is his name? Jonathan Demme. Uh, no, 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 not not yeah. not Demme. Um, Lyle Wilson plays one of the other scientists in the movie and is the murder victim, initial murder victim, and sisters. Um, oh, okay, I had completely forgotten that he was in this movie. Uh, because I think maybe the last time I saw the Incredible Melting Man, I might not have seen Sisters yet. Um, but it was really kind of cool to see him. I was like, oh, shit. Like, what's, what's that dude doing? He's <laughs> dead, man, on a couch. Um, so the government doesn't want anyone to know that this happened because obviously, like, this would be, you know, an embarrassment to him. And the melting man is just kind of, like, rampaging across this town, like, murdering. <laughs> he kills this fisherman. And it, one of my favorite shots in the whole movie is the fisherman's, like, severed head bobbing down this creek and then falling over a waterfall um, where it comes to rest in this, like, little pseudo-dam of, like, sticks and stuff. Um, you know, he menaces some kids, but the kids don't get killed because you don't want to do that. Um, anyway, eventually, they track the melting man um, to this power station where... Um, Ted Nelson is trying to still has hope that like his friend Steve West is inside, you know, this monster's form. Um, the funny thing is whenever the melting man goes anywhere, he leaves parts of himself yeah. and people are constantly like touching like his melted skin and kind of like smelling it and looking at it, like, oh, what's this stuff? Like everybody's always smelling yeah. like the detritus of the incredible melting man. <laughs> um, so anyway, so they it's it's nelson and his police officer friend um played by michael Allred. um nelson still has hope that they can save him but 
<laughs> Another really funny scene. The Incredible Melting Man throws the police officer like over the side of a stairwell and he hits these high power lines and then it's this ridiculously long scene of his body sliding down yes. these high tension lines and just like exploding and catching on fire and like it's it's in slow motion like as he falls to the ground and is burning. Um so Nelson gets knocked off um and is hanging on and is like Steve, save me Steve, 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 it's me, Ted Steve. Like it goes on forever. Yes. And these security guards are there. So Steve recognizes them and like pulls them to safety. And then <laughs> fucking hilarious. So Ted Ted Nelson gets in front of the incredible melting man when the security guards have their gone guns drawn and he's like no i'm a doctor yeah. don't and then he gets shot in the head so he's dead yeah so then the melting man like goes nuts and kills the two security guards and then ends up melting into nothingness um as the sun rises and the next morning this poor janitor comes along and is like what the fuck is this pile of shit and then the movie ends with the janitor having to like clean up the the mess of the melting man um into a trash bucket so yeah this movie is not a good movie by any stretch right and it's also the horror elements of it i think the practical effects in this movie are fantastic like i love the way Mm -hmm. that the steve west character looks yeah i love the way they film him like moving through the countryside sometimes like it's got a very um almost like None cinema verite isn't the right way to put it, but it's got like a very almost like documentary feel to it sometimes in the way they shoot him and only him. Um, but also some of the stupidest characters in the history of film in this movie. Um, and I don't know what uh Ted Nelson's a doctor of, but it's definitely not anything that requires a degree. Um, because he's the biggest idiot like ever, and really a terrible performance, but yeah. This is one of those movies that used to come on Saturday matinee, you know, horror film, like once or twice a year. Um, I would always watch it when it came on. I always enjoyed watching it Um, as I've gotten older. And I probably haven't seen this movie in. Well, that's not true. I did watch this movie earlier this year because I was um, just had like a really like it, it popped up on Prime one day and I was feeling real nostalgic on a Saturday when we didn't have any podcast movies to watch mm-hmm. and I ended up watching it and then I watched it again this week um, I just love it like I think it's the perfect homage to the horror of science movies from like the 1950s um, while still having like the really good practical effects of the 1970s and I think if you can kind of just like I hate to say turn off your brain, but if you can be okay with watching some tongue-in-cheek stuff and, you know, seeing, like, these gross-out scenes that are coupled with, like, some really funny moments, um, <laughs> the thing, here's another thing that makes me laugh. So these these three kids, there's these two, like, little boys. I'm, I don't is, know, this like the smo- or, is this the yeah. smoking? Yeah. It's like eight or nine years old sitting behind this, like, abandoned house, like, having a secret cigarette. Yeah. And this little girl comes up, she's like, give me a puff of that and they give her a puff and she's like ew and then immediately just like stomps it out and there's like they no sell it completely so they got like this um 
I don't know what you call it, like contraband cigarette that they're trying to enjoy. And this like little asshole like ruins their moment of enjoyment. <laughs> um, and then almost gets him killed by the incredible melting man, even though like nothing happens to the kids, but right. Um, so it, it makes An- it- another, another really funny, uh, bit is the overly amorous couple, like the really old couple is driving down mm-hmm. the road and it's just like all this, like, you know, kind of like a uh, sexual innuendo or maybe sometimes not even innuendo. Um, that, that made me laugh. Uh, there's a lot yeah. of things that, like, cause you and I don't always agree on this. Like, well, me, you and Orion, like about like, uh, things that are funny in like right. these, uh these like horror movies that aren't that great but um i really thought this was i thought this was fine as a movie itself um yeah bad acting all that stuff but i i thought it was funny too uh there's a line in it where somebody asks he's he's radiated and then the response is just a little right uh-huh. <laughs> oh no it's they're examining a corpse now that's what it is and it's um <laughs> it's uh ted nelson and um the other doctor uh, the one played by the guy from um, Sisters. Yeah. And a nurse. It's the first nurse yeah. that gets killed. And they're like, yeah, he's radiant. A little. <laughs> Not enough to hurt us. It's right. okay. Right. It's just and that's when that's when um, Ted Nelson's like, what? We, we got to do something. He can't radiate people. <laughs> um, And again, I think, I mean, you, you said this, but it's 100% right. Like, you can enjoy this movie because it's funny, but it's also there's some craft in it. like mm-hmm. it's not low budget it's not cheap i mean it, it probably like it's it's a movie like it's a legitimate movie it's not mm-hmm. you know it's straight to video garbage that's actually one of the reasons why the 70s is so great and why i think that as much as i love like the horror of the 80s the 70s will always be my favorite decade because the majority of movies that are put out like even if they're grindhouse you know like low budget you know five real whatever they're still real movies like they're all filmed on film they're all filmed by people who have some knowledge of how to like actually you know film a movie so you do get a greater feeling of um i don't know like quality maybe Mm -hmm. so yeah i thoroughly enjoyed this i watched most of it as i was making a lasagna on a saturday afternoon and it or Sunday afternoon, maybe, and it, like, it, but it reminded me greatly of, um, like you said, that's what it reminded me of watching, even though I never seen it. Is like the types of movies I would watch on a Saturday afternoon at like one o'clock, two o'clock, whenever they came on, whatever the WB CW yeah. station used to be back in the day. It was um, Channel Fifty Four for us here. Oh yeah, it was always Channel Fifty Four, but it was like Channel like Seven, right? <laughs> like it was like, but yeah um they they call themselves like channel 54 but it was always like no it was legitimately 54 for me because we had a um a rotary antenna gotcha and that that's probably why yeah but it was uh, like on cable it was like you know through tci or whatever it was back in the day it was um it was always like channel seven or something like that whatever the wb became um but yeah no thoroughly enjoyable um uh for me i i really look and look it's not great but it's like i I like the movie. Um, it's something I would watch again um, for enjoyment. It's, it's a good fall movie too, and we watched it in the summer. But just the way that it's filmed and like the lighting in it and the the setting, um, it it's it feels good to watch when you watch yeah. it like in the fall. No, so. you're absolutely right. If you can feel, and that's and that's what you're talking about. Like there is like artistry behind it. Like there is a sense of like uh, 
there's a sense of setting and mood and time um in the movie to me like it feels like this kind of small town you're right it feels like um october like it feels like you know like a 50 degree weather at night yep um you know it, yeah no you're right um no i i i recommend it um there's um if you if you care to watch it this way there's i'm pretty sure there's a mystery science theater 3000 version of this movie yeah there is and then um parody website or parody youtube channel the best of the worst um did a, a one of their best of the worst or red letter media did one of their best of the worst mm. um where they talk about this movie but um yeah it's 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 funny i think it's really enjoyable and i think it's definitely worth you know an hour and a half of your time so yeah all right so number three on your list um other kind of radical movement here the is called the sentinel it's directed by michael winner it stars christina rains ava gardner chris sarandon martin balsam john carradine and jose ferrar it has a 50 percent from critics and a 44 percent from audiences you, want to you didn't even list like all the people i know movie. i know so i know <laughs> maybe of any movie we've ever watched on this podcast this is the most stacked cast yeah. without the principal character being like a really no name mm-hmm. in terms of um fuck i can't remember her goddamn name christina um, Reigns. yeah christina Reigns. Mm-hmm. um so the sentinel is <clears throat> sort of a, i guess like a natural progression i mean it's based on a book but in terms of like why it got made into a film um the exorcist rosemary's baby uh the omen so it's it's similar in vain in like these spiritual like proto-christian like horror movies um reigns plays a beautiful actress who has a history of suicide attempts um she is in a relationship with the chris sarani character who's a successful lawyer um but he wants her to commit to marrying him and she doesn't want to commit marrying him she wants to prove that she can be on her own and um even though they get into it later there's some intimation early that she's been in the hospital for something psychological related and she's trying to prove that she can like survive on her own so when she's looking for apartments she finds this place that's in an old brownstone um almost mansion that's been converted into individual um apartments and she moves in there and it's furnished and it's like this beautiful old building and she meets um her neighbor who's this eccentric old man who carries a cat with him and has a parakeet on his shoulder um shavitz i think right that's the chavez or something like that yes chazen chazen yeah um and he invites her to a party and she goes to this party and there's all these like really weird eccentric people there and um she meets her other neighbors and they're this like really kind of weird like bdsm lesbian couple um so you see in flashback that she had a suicide attempt as a teenage girl because she walked in on her father um having a threesome with like two prostitutes and it caused her to kind of like lose her mind and try and kill herself and you find out that she's had multiple suicide attempts since um so she's played kind of by like these visions um 
and one of the things she sees is like the corpse of her father and she thinks that she's like she stabs him and then she runs outside of the apartment and she's all covered in blood and then when they go back to look like none of her neighbors are there like the only person that lives in the apartment with her is this old blind man that lives up on the fifth floor so <clears throat> she has to go back in the hospital and everybody thinks she's crazy but then you find out this is this is actually one of my favorite parts of the movie is the way that it's kind of this like slow like onion peel reveal of these different things to kind of build the characters um you find out that uh, the chris sarandon character was suspected at one point of murdering his 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 wife because she refused to grant him a divorce and then you find out that um uh allison you know the main character was kind of like the mistress that was involved in that and that was another one of her suicide attempts and um the police are skeptical that she even murdered anybody because she was covered in like what they identified as her own blood type um and it's another it's cool watching movies from the 70s where there's not like dna testing where they could immediately you know rule out like whose blood it was or whatever Mm -hmm. um so ultimately she thinks that she's she doesn't think she's crazy she thinks that these people are like we're actually there and sarandon doesn't believe it so he hires a private he has hires a private investigator and then he goes to investigate himself and what you ultimately find out um is that like she goes to see a priest at one point and then no one will um acknowledge the priest exists like there's all kinds of things they do where they really play well with the unreliable narrator portion of it, where you don't know if what she's seeing is really being seen because nobody else sees it, or if she is really like um, experiencing these things and it's just that they're being hidden from other people. Um, So what you eventually find out is that the blind man on the top floor is a priest um, whose job it is to be, the sentinel basically for the gates of hell and there's a really great scene where sarandon um uncovers this plaque that's the uh um, what is that paradise lost um, abandoned all hope he he here, here, here um and that um shazen is actually satan and so all the people that she was seeing in this house are actually murderers that have died and that are enthralled as satan and that the only thing that's keeping the gates of hell from opening is this idea of the sentinel like this holy person that's just sits there and kind of keeps watch over the gates of hell so you find out that chris sarandon because he gets killed at one you know towards the end of the movie and then you find out that he went to hell because he did Mm -hmm. um actually indeed murder his wife or have his wife murdered by the um the guy that he hired as a private investigator um, and there's a great scene where he's like, and I'm also in hell and I am Legion and like his face is like cracking apart. And they have all these and what would really be unacceptable today. They use people with actual like facial deformities um, to represent like demons or um, yeah, the, the devils of hell. Um, and they're all coming after her and she sees the apparition of her father and of the prostitutes and of sarandon and the devil's trying to convince her like you know i love you like just kill yourself and you can join us and you know we'll be successful um but ultimately what has to happen is someone has to take the place of the current sentinel and the current sentinel has been there 
for like 50 years, I think they say. Um, and it's his time to die, and then she has to take his place. And the reason it has to be her is because she can save her soul from all the failed suicide attempts. So it's very Catholic, like this whole movie. Yeah. Um, so eventually, um, the priest that's been assigned to kind of like be the sentinel to the sentinel sort of um they drive satan and his forces back and she accepts her role um and then they show the brownstone being destroyed and modern apartments being erected and this young couple's there looking at apartments and they're like oh like what are the tenants like and like well this guy's you know a violinist for the whatever orchestra and then you've got this nun that kind of just keeps to herself and you know she's blind and just looks out the window and then it's um the allison character like in her role um so problematic stuff with this movie i guess is first and foremost is the use of people with you know physical deformities to represent it's like the freaks argument when you watch freaks today like todd browning movie right. you know you're exploiting someone for their physical appearance that they can't control to make them into a monster like into a <clears throat> whatever like a something to scare people or like titillate with right um which is unfortunate but it's also really effective in this movie um there's some clunky stuff in this movie early on i feel um but overall like i love the way the plot progresses i love the way they reveal you know the mystery kind of behind mm -hmm. her and sort of show her past and build this really i think compelling character in her as somebody who's constantly um almost hated herself through her entire life because of things outside her control and is always looking for this easy way out of um committing suicide but it's never successful with it and is finally getting this chance to really kind of redeem herself um by taking on this huge responsibility of being you know the guardian of the gates of hell really which is a, yeah. a really cool concept it is um and i think reigns does i think reigns is probably the best performance in this as well yeah, she's, like I, she's fantastic in this I, I think a lot of other people kind of uh honestly phone it in at times like um but i think she really like you know uh you know uh, her, her and sarandon have a really great chemistry that's also very uncomfortable at times yes yeah. and he does a really good job of being creepy without being a creep so he makes you uneasy but you never he's very good at that in general yeah <laughs> yeah fully fall into the you, you never realize that he's a villain mm -hmm. until they hit you with it and it really is like i don't know like right at the end of that movie when they they really like don't pull any punches and show you sure how awful he is yeah so let's let's talk for a minute about this cast list i'm, I'm gonna read this <laughs> right fucking yeah. cast list. so you got chris sarandon and christina ranger leads then you got john carradine jose farrar ava gardner burgess meredith sylvia miles mm -hmm. eli wallach christopher walken jeffrey jerry orbach beverly d'angelo yeah hank garrett tom berenger william hickey and jeff goldblum in this movie and some of these people in like really early roles in their career but and when and, you look and, at and, and none of the well uh not a tucker um not a visitor is um 
a very prominent role of anybody that knows Deep Space Nine um, in that show as well. Well, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> right, yeah. So. But. Um, but anyway, just some uncomfortable things in this movie, and the pacing is a little clunky at times, especially um, it has this opening, and it really, like, it sets you up to think you're really getting like a straight religious horror movie and then it kind of pulls away from it because it opens in this small village in like Italy with this big monastery and these like Rolls Royces all parked out front. And then there's a bunch of like bishops and cardinals and whatever sitting in this room talking about the need to like basically like protect the world from evil. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of cuts away from it. You don't get any of that for like, I don't know, 45 minutes until it comes back to it. But it does a great job of building her as a believable, almost like supermodel, while still making her a vulnerable person. Um, it does a really good job of building their relationship. Um, the woman that plays her uh, her best friend, um, Deborah Raffin, they have a good relationship with each other. Um, there's a couple of funny Goldblum scenes where he's mm -hmm. like this high class photographer um so yeah just this is a movie i saw maybe when i was like 14 or 15 and i really loved it i was really impressed by it and i've watched it a few times since and um just enjoy it every time um it definitely is a 70s movie you really do have to the caveat to a lot of these movies is that can you as like a morally conscious modern human being accept the fact that at some point our social mores and ideas were different, right? right? And if you can kind of get past that, then this is a really enjoyable movie. Because um, there's stuff too with the, what's his name, with the cops. Um, yeah. With uh, Eli Wallach and uh, Christopher Walken, that also was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, just in the way like they phrase things and whatever. But, yeah. and we'll actually, the, it, I probably should have led this into the number one movie because there's some similarities just in terms of like, tonally and with the characters in it um but one of the better religious horror movies i think ever and up on par to me with uh the omen and the exorcist so yeah i'm not a overall big fan i don't think of catholic horror um but i think it was just such a unique and interesting concept with a compelling enough mystery that um it really sucked me in and I wasn't expecting it to, um, as soon as I realized, cause I didn't read anything about it. I, as soon as I realized it was, um, it was Catholic horror. I was like, ah, okay. Um, but it really sucked me in and I think it was an interesting story told well, acted well enough with a really good performance by Reigns. Um, and, and it also kind of, again, reminded me of some kind of Saturday afternoon movie. Um, I'd see it cut down, maybe um, edited for television, but right. um, something along those lines or something like, you know, up all night or something, you know, like something I would have seen like in the late 80s, you know, being reshown since it was, um, you know. So uh, we're getting into that era, I think, of movies towards the end of the 70s of things I might have grown up on potentially having seen on television um by the time the mid to late 80s come about um, right because they're far enough away that it's cheap to show them um syndicate them but uh yeah no i really enjoyed this movie and um uh it's something i'll have to watch again at some point um 
I think if I had a criticism of this movie, it's like <sighs> out of those three that you mentioned, putting it up there with the Exorcist and the Omen, I think this is the worst directed out of the three because it's so uneven and i feel like there's a real lack of confidence in his direction Mm -hmm. and it also might be in the editing of the movie too i'm not sure if that's like where it maybe uh when i when i read some criticism of this i did see people critics that did not have a lot of respect for michael winter for one reason or another um in terms of his past work um so i don't know if it's it's a thing where it's like he's just kind of a uh oh damn it uh workman like director who just like kind of like comes in and films the script that's there um but yeah it's not bad it's just that it was uh nothing special necessarily to go along with what i think was a pretty special story um in terms of direction um so i just thought like that was a little bland at times but it's serviceable um for the story but i think it could have elevated it even a little bit more if you had had somebody behind the camera that was yeah a little bit more for so many things experimental that's on this list uh, somebody is a little bit maybe more experimental or took more risks maybe yeah i mean this is 100 percent the most straightforward yeah movie so but i don't know yeah i i still really enjoy it yeah, and I yeah, think it's I really carried by the performances and the story. And just again, like, and I know we just spoiled like almost everything here, but the way this movie reveals every bit of itself is so fucking brilliant in the way that it's written. I just, I, mm-hmm. it, yeah. oh, it, it, I've seen this movie on, like I said, like maybe like six, seven times, I guess, but it always impresses me just how, um, how it really just unfolds itself and yeah well you compare it you can oh sorry go ahead no even to your point like if you have a better director here like get william friedkin to make this movie you know and you have a masterpiece probably maybe one of the best horror movies of all time i think yeah um and it falls short of that but it still is a really good movie and really worth watching i think so yeah i mean it's 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 very uh it's very cleverly done in terms of the reveals here like you compare it to what we talked about what, last month to the devil a daughter and how the reveals are slowly done something like that which are a little bit more heavy-handed i think at times and like more expos- exposition-y yeah. um in nature um I, I think this is done in a really subtle clever way that um yeah, it really elevates it, I think, in my my eyes. I'll also say this, that in several other years of this decade, this might have been, like, the number one movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the two movies that are ahead of it, I think, definitely deserve to be ahead of it. Right. Um, so just, I guess, a tough year, 77, for the old Sentinel. <laughs> yeah. All right. Excuse me. Uh, speaking of which, number two is Eraserhead, directed by David Lynch, stars Jack Nance, Charlotte Stewart, and Alan Joseph, has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 82% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this movie um, and uh, why you have so high the list. So this is probably the most important movie on this list. Um, And honestly, 
one of the most important movies of the decade for a lot of reasons um but a very difficult movie to watch um very experimental um the premise is that uh, jack nance plays this guy that works in a printing shop um kind of the sad sack who's fallen i wouldn't even say in love but he's in this like relationship with this woman um there's maybe a metaphysical maybe a legitimate like man that lives inside of this planet who's turning or moving levers and stuff that's making things go and jack nance is going um he goes to dinner with his girlfriend's family and everything's weird and her dad is a pipe fitter that makes these chickens and the chickens are these little chickens but they bleed like human blood when you cut them and then the mother tries to fuck him jack nance but he doesn't want to like have sex with the mother so she's like well you know my daughter's pregnant and it's your baby and then they have to get married and move or they have to move in together and then they have the baby but the baby is this uh, fetus looking thing with a face like a skin rabbit kind of um and it's really sickly and disgusting and then their relationships falls apart and then he has sex with this beautiful woman that lives across the hall from him and he has visions of this woman in his radiator that sings well eventually sings to him she doesn't sing mm-hmm. at first but um i don't know like there's in the end he kind of like risks it all for this beautiful woman and she ends up with this other man and it's he's crestfallen and then maybe he's kind of like saved by the woman in the radiator or maybe the world is destroyed or i don't know maybe his baby is blown up um maybe it's not even his baby or a baby at all um Eraserhead is a movie that you have to watch to kind of experience and believe and i would have told you um at different points in my life i would tell you that i hate Eraserhead and i love Eraserhead and i'm ambivalent towards it um there's a lot of things in this movie that are the genesis point for greater things that come later especially with mm-hmm. lynch um set design sound design the way he films things the way he has characters speak um very much reminiscent of some twin peaks stuff um actually he he experimented it didn't make it into the film he experimented with that backwards the backwards speak, in yeah. this movie yeah on set so so many things okay so let's let's talk about what makes this movie horror um this movie is 100% like a I wouldn't call it surrealist because there's an element of grounding to it but it's very much an abstract I think meditation on life in the city and mm-hmm. the connections between people to other people and the loneliness of the modern age and the fear of parenthood and also like ultimately a meditation on what comes after you die right like what's what's there like what's your fate like what happens when you move on um and all done in like the inimitable way that david lynch does things um which means that it's super weird at times and it's not there's not 
you know the funny thing is like i was gonna say there's no the narrative is very easy to follow and it's a very clear narrative like yes. even though there's weird weird things that are happening like at every step of the way lynch is telling you this is what's happening this is how it affects these characters this mm-hmm. is why it matters and then moving you to the next thing and so the basic thing is really just the failed relationship between a man and this woman that have a kid together yeah and from from a plot standpoint the eraser head scene is the hardest thing i think to to maybe insert like how yeah, is but this it's a necessarily it's a dream sense. sequence really sure you know? like, it is. It's, right. it's, yeah. it's it's a fantasy almost right. Yeah. So in anything like a dream sequence can come out of nowhere and kind right. of yeah. be weird. Um, and the dream is that his head, um, his head was taken to a place where they make erasers and was turned into the erasers on the end of a pencil. Mm-hmm. Um, although if you look at the case, if you look at the cover of this movie, you might think that it's a racer head just because his hairstyle right. is like a pencil eraser. Um, right. It's nothing to do with the hairstyle, though. Yeah, Jack Jack Nance looking super young in this movie too, which yeah, is, is um, yeah. uh, nice and also like a little sad to see because you know no longer with us. Yeah, um, it's it's the details of this movie that sink in with you and stay with you and like really get under your skin. And like the lady in the radiator has these weird like pustules like growing out of her cheeks, where it's almost like she's like a hyper realized version of like betty boop kind of mm-hmm. in her facial style but like they're pockmarked and sunken in places yeah. and um chipmunkish almost yeah she um she sings a song that's just kind of like this almost like ragtime lullaby style yeah. um the in heaven song which in heaven everything is fine yeah, yeah if you're familiar with there's a couple of bands that have covered it, in my opinion most famously the pixies do a cover of in heaven um there's the sets themselves which he built in stables in some place in california that he had access to i guess the stables of the film institute he was at in california yes yeah um but they look and feel like these it almost feels like something like waiting for godot or something like that where it's like uh like the sets are almost separate from everything else in existence like they exist in these bubbles like floating next to each other so even though everything feels connected it's like abjectly disconnected as well yeah um yeah there's some really disgusting things like the baby itself is really difficult to look at and has one of the greatest i guess like secrets in cinema history is how that baby was created because it feels like a living thing and it's disgusting and lynch has never i guess like revealed what the baby was made out of no um there's been some idea like it was a skin rabbit or a skin like baby lamb or something Mm -hmm. um but it's it's fucking like foul yeah i think him and him and nance did it right like i think they they were they were the only two that knew i think and i think he had the rest of the crew like look away or like not be there when they were doing stuff with it um in terms of the audio like the sound mixing and the audio in it um, and we talked about this, was it last week, two, two weeks ago, we two did ago, the yeah. mm-hmm. sound design in movies, um, just completely innovative in the way that, like, they created the ambient sounds and the soundtrack, and, um, and Lynch was a visual artist at first, so, you know, you see a lot of, like, really cool, um, almost, like, outsider art aesthetic to everything in this movie, um, 
it's something that I think other people have tried to capture for decades after and no one has captured quite as well. Um, to me, maybe the people that have come the closest are um, the dudes that did uh, Delicatessen and City of Lost Children. Mm. Um, I can't remember their names yeah, off the top of my right, head. Yeah. But um, that that's probably the closest thing to capturing the dystopian, grimy, underbelly, like, funk of Eraserhead. Um, and even there, you're, they're too pretty in the way they do it. But you know, you know who else? Maybe uh, what's his name? Um, that movie we watched, the guy that did uh, uh, oh, fuck, Color Out of Space, Richard. Um, oh shit. Um, what is his name? Anyway, that movie we watched, where it's the dystopian Terminator style. Which I can't remember what that movie's called now, even though Richard Stanley. Yeah, um, Richard Stanley. Right. The Void is that it? No, no. Does he do that? Hold on. It is Richard Stanley, but it's the one that you didn't like that hardware. much. Hardware. Yeah, hardware. There you yeah. go. Um, it, like he comes close to it as well in the way that he kind of films yeah. that. But Eraserhead again is it's something you have to experience to truly, I think, appreciate. Um, it's definitely not for everybody. Uh, you really have to be in the same way that I said with house, you have to just kind of be open to the experience of it. Um, even more so here, you have to just be open to the experience of watching this movie, but I think it's compelling. It's beautifully shot. It's definitely one of the strongest debuts of a director ever, maybe especially in terms of the longevity and the importance of the movie and you know the grand scheme of like cinema um but yeah just fantastic movie i'm i'm at i'm at the point in my life where i love this movie now where like 15 years ago i would have told you i hated it maybe not even 15 maybe even like five years ago i would have told you i hated it i go back and forth on it i don't know like i can never you're never going to be able to pin me down with how i feel about um eraser yeah basically yeah um i haven't watched this in a long time um i've watched it twice in the last month because if we talked about it i wanted to i want to do it right because i don't know if we'll ever who knows if we'll ever talk about it ever again um to go through i think the meaning of this movie which is kind of a fool's errand i think to some degree just because lynch will never talk about it um ever so who knows um what really is going on to talk about it i think in any kind of like you know detail would would take a longer podcast but um uh but yeah you you hit the key themes of industry and the way industry affects people and the fear of uh parenthood particularly from the male perspective um and all that kind of stuff i looking at it from the idea that lynch himself like wh- how how you said better there's better things to come um but how much of what is kind of a core the core staples of the lynch in films are like here to some degree and after watching it having seen all of twin peaks and every single lynch movie multiple times and never going back to revisit this it's like a lot of the shit is already here um, which is fascinating to me uh, re-watching it now. 
um, the the how prominent electricity ends up being like throughout the movie, um, particularly the idea of the lights. It happens multiple times. Lights get brighter and then go out. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, floating heads randomly in space. Um, women singing on stages is always like a key to to, to Lynch's movies. Uh, people breaking out into odd conv- convulsions and or or odd emotional outbursts with like wailing and odd physical movements associated with it. Um, industry being ugly and harmful to people. Um, I would even say that like uh, when he. Uh, basically kills the baby at the end that it's um i I think that's cream corn um oh yeah yeah that comes out of the baby which becomes a staple in twin peaks um representing in his mind pain and suffering it seems um so yeah there's a lot of stuff here that it's like if you're a student of lynch um and have not went back to go watch this it's i think extremely important to understanding symbols um in his mind uh but as a movie watching experience uh yeah it's um things he talks about all the time like you know it's it's oddly beautiful for how disgusting it is um and you know he constantly talks about fear and love um you know and there's a beauty in both and um you definitely get that sense here in this kind of like weird like you know again abstract way that it's like you end up feeling his movies at times um just as much as you end up having to think about them later i think right um but uh this was at least one of kubrick's favorite films um Lynch Lynch says that it was his favorite, um, but um, it, definitely one of Kubrick's favorite films. And along with Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, he would make the cast and crew of The Shining watch this movie um, during the filming to get them in the mood. And I didn't know this until recently was uh, the whole scene when uh, Torrance in The Shining walking into room 237 and then backing out um, when the old lady is approaching him. Um, Kubrick was inspired. Kubrick was inspired by the scene where Henry goes to the woman across the hall's apartment. Um, and backs away um, in horror and kind of it's like some kind of weird like homage um, to Eraserhead that sequence mm, that's interesting um, but yeah it's um, it's definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting film if you want to like you know know about like the symbolism and stuff like that I'm trying to think um, who has anything out there lynch interviews will do nothing for you although right. i love lynch interviews i love listening to the guy um the only thing he ever said is um uh, what was it uh it is a dark and uh disturbing dream <laughs> um and it's like yeah sure um oh mal mal malrose i think pro project or something like that has a pretty good video out there um it's been years since i watched it but um uh that's somebody that has a pretty good take i think on a lot of it but yeah lynch fascinating guy he's uh, one of my favorite directors i think you can go back to episode like 
two, I think it was, Frank. Is that right? Um, uh, where we talked about Lynch movies, um, top five Lynch movies. Yeah. Uh, something I would like to, I think we've already talked about, I would like to revisit again someday. Um, definitely a guy who is um, out of his mind in like the absolute, like uh, most respectful and positive way. I, um, I could say that, but I, I've really loved watching this movie again. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, number one on your list more fame i don't know do you think it's more famous than a racer hen yeah Yeah. in certain circles sure yeah uh is the hills have eyes directed by Wes craven it stars suze lanier bromlett robert houston d wallace james whitworth russ grieve and michael berryman has a 67 percent from critics on Rotten tomatoes a 50 four percent from audiences you want to tell us a little bit about this and why it's number one on the list one of my favorite horror movies of all time um follows the carter family as they're moving from fuck like indiana i think moving out to california upon the retirement of the patriarch of the family, who's a retired... Are they from Chicago? Anyway, he's a retired detective. Um, terrible temper. Like, really kind of the prototypical, like, angry, like, American white man kind of image. Um, the mother's this receding flower, you know, who's always, oh, you know, watch your heart, dear. Like, don't want you. <laughs> um three two daughters and a son and a son-in-law who's married to the oldest daughter and they have a baby together um driving in their station wagon and rv um across the country to go to california they decide to take a detour in the nevada desert um to find an old silver mine that um a relative has left to them as a silver anniversary gift um and basically they just get fucked from there um there's a family of cannibals whose names are all adopted from um, Roman gods or planets, however you want to look at it. But I always, I always think of it as the Roman gods, you know, Mars, Jupiter, mm-hmm. um, who in, inhabit this land and who make almost like a sort of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque where they just prey upon like travelers and they take their stuff and they feed on them. Um, so the family gets in an accident because of the hot-headedness of the um the father they try to try to find help unsuccessfully um and then again they get targeted by these cannibals um it's mars pluto and mercury are the the men um and then papa jupiter is the you know the patriarch of the cannibal family um, so it's basically like two families pitted against each other. Um, and it ends up with, um, they have two, what are they? Not Rottweilers. German Shepherds, right? Is what those dogs are. Uh, Beast and yes. Beauty. Yes. Um, so Beast beauty gets killed and then beast is like 
there with um uh Doug who's the son-in-law um and it's kind of like painted as uh I don't know how to say this in a play way like a less than masculine man in comparison to um Big Bob who's the patriarch of the family that's the Russ Grieve character um whereas uh Doug is you know like not really considered to be an equal um kind of looked down upon for kind of stealing the eldest daughter away um i was wondering watching this so let me ask you this question because whatever we'll talk about the plot is this craven commenting on like almost toxic masculinity 40 years before that became a thing that people talked about do you think yeah i think there's i believe there's been a couple movies like this decade that we've talked about that kind of start hitting at some of that yeah but i think it's definitely here i mean he definitely kind of addresses it in um last house on the left which we did not talk about right um because i'm never going to talk about that fucking virgin spring ripoff but um (laughs) i think that definitely like that's that's his thing is like pointing out you know big bob carter in another movie would be the hero he'd be right you know the tough man's man but here he's a guy that's been brought low by a you know a weak heart Mm -hmm. um who's quick to anger and who makes bad decisions and basically causes the majority of his family to you know get killed yes um and then on the other side of that, there's Papa Jupiter, who's kind of the same character, you know, a guy mm-hmm. who rules with fear and strength, who has no time for weakness, like in his family, um, and whose own like ego is ultimately like what kills them both, really. There's definitely a feeling that, yeah, like the, the, the male authority figures are the major cause of the downfalls of everybody, yeah. Ego, like male ego. So, and fear, like at times, from the children of that father figure. Right. Although Bobby has, like, no fear because he's able to do whatever he wants. And because he's a man, even though he's young, that's Big Bob's, you know, that's his, you know, his offspring, like his protege and the guy that he's put in charge. Although I think it's interesting that Craven doesn't paint Bobby as, like, a terrible person or an asshole. Um, Although I hate him every time he does that, like, cartwheel into, like, the handspring thing at the beginning of the movie. But, yeah. um, and the way he says, beauty? I don't know. There's, it's, it, it's a weird performance. <laughs> yeah. Um, Robert Houston. So, this is, like, kind of the American, an answer isn't the right word, but, like, the Americanized look at something like mad max like what happens when you disconnect people from society for so long and force them to you know sort of live on the fringes of the world um and where mad max over the course of their movies paints that as the cause of a nuclear holocaust here it's just people kind of scratching and surviving in the desert and forming their own like tribe that feeds off you know, the weakness of, I guess, modern culture. Um, I love the way this movie looks. Um, I think there's really great tension that's built 
and it's funny because we talked about this when we talked about most disappointing um most disappointing movies we were talking about wolf creek and how much i like the first wolf creek movie um and how it's such a slow build up to you know what ends up becoming like whatever like the ultimate like conflict in that movie this movie also is a slow build so you see small things like a bloody handprint on the wall um a shape like darting between like two buildings in the background noises you know you get the you kind of get introduced to the evilness of papa jupiter through the old man's interactions with the young girl ruby who's part of their tribe without like seeing them you know it's 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 craven being so restrained in not just beating you over the head with like violence or um torture or whatever and so to really talk about this movie and how much why it's so great we need to talk about the remake of this movie from 2006 done by um uh, alejandro aha i guess the guy that did uh, mm-hmm. high tension yeah that is the complete like no restraint like it audit it's from the very beginning it's just trying to like brutalize you with right sound and image and craven is building this almost alien world of this desert like on the outskirts of a bombing range basically and nothing around no civilization and just how how easily civilization falls apart you know in in that context with these you know cannibals like this cannibal Mm -hmm. family who have their own code and their own morality but it's so completely separate from that of um you know that of like the the carter family and you don't really get any like real brutality or anything until the sun goes down until they start to really like you know stalk this family um big bob being strapped to the bonfire or whatever and getting lit in fire fucking fantastic yes um the hunting them like when it the kind of the tables turn and beast is hunting them through the canyons is a fucking fantastic like sequence and i'm always a sucker for the desert anyway like i think we've talked about this like i love the desert you do anything does um so just Barryman is iconic in this role, um, playing uh, who is he? Mercury, is that right? He's Pluto. Pluto, right? Um, and a guy who's just weird as face, and somebody who, um, basically made a living making horror movies because he's so odd looking. Um, but this is, I think, the first time that you really see him in a horror setting, and just you know, the headdress and the it really is like something on Mad Max and I wonder if um what's his name was uh was inspired when he did um the road warrior by the look of um you know Papa Jupiter's family just the way they dress and like the makeshift kind of like slapdash way their clothes are put together it's like a mixture of you know like found objects and mm-hmm. pelts and whatnot um yeah it's a great movie it's a great commentary about not only i think modern society but what men are capable of when they're put in you know um adverse situations um 
and Craven is a fantastic director at this point. Um, and we'll go on to direct like some really great movies. But to me, this is Craven's best movie, and it's one of my favorite horror movies ever. Yeah, I really I like that love- sequence too, where um they try to turn the tables on the cannibals with the the whole contraption with the car and trying to lure them into the trailer to blow it up. Like that whole sequence plays out really really well and really logically and i think something like that being one of the couple of action sequences in this um the way the way he directs that really shows the strength of a director um particularly in like making sure he captured everything and captures in a really interesting way for the editing team because it's a very logical sequence of things like that you can follow very easily and i'm always for some reason very impressed with like somebody that can do things and make it make complete sense all the way with no no gaps no questions um and and it can it scene comes off really well and has some really good tension to it um i was really particularly impressed with that scene yeah don't you think i mean people under the stairs um certainly has i'm just going through the list of his movies it certainly has those hints i mean it's like you know whatever 14 years after this but it has hints of you know that toxic masculinity in it um i think this also uh the hypocrisy of religious fanaticism sure I mean, I, I don't. Th- yeah, I don't know if you can like separate religious fanaticism from toxic masculinity to some degree. Mm. Um, scream, like, sure. I, I mean, so it's it's this is this is probably the earliest example, but yeah, I mean, like, I think he has a career of um, some movies with some of that stuff. So, um. So, people that sit there and say that this is just kind of like a ripoff of uh, Texas Chainsaw, like how how do you feel about that? Nah, it's 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 different. There's how to say this. Texas Chainsaw is absolute chaos, and you know, I mean, the tagline is "Who will survive and what will be left of them," right? And that's the thing is that. When she escapes at the end, it's not because she's smart or clever or strong or she just gets lucky and gets away, basically, right? Like, at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, I mean, she just takes advantage of a situation, runs, and ends up getting away from these people. The Hills Have Eyes is about, I mean, it's really like two families pitted against each other, and it's the civilized world versus, you know a more savage almost like neanderthal style of like life and texas chainsaw you're not meant to you're not meant to simple sympathize with papa jupiter's family but you can sort of understand where they come from because again they have and i guess maybe that's short texas chainsaw it's not a ripoff of texas chainsaw that's ridiculous they're two completely different movies just because they're cannibals i mean there's plenty of cannibal movies that um anyway i only ask because it's it's one of the common criticisms of it is that it's just the texas chainsaw ripoff that is okay like basically that and there's an underwhelming script that's the other like common critique of of the movie 
Um, the script is is underwhelming. Like, I just I don't say I I think that's a really lame I I think that's a lame comparison. Um, by people that don't have an appreciation for horror movies, right? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. I I couldn't track it to where it was popularized and like where it was coming from. But um, yeah, it's a pretty common complaint, particularly from audiences. Um, I only found it in one review, but it didn't. I can make sense of it. I don't think that review had anything to do with people thinking that. I mean, it could just be people having the same opinion on things. But I, I always think that it's usually some some reviewer that people are mimicking often. But yeah, I don't know. I just don't see it. Now, if you wanted to tell me that, I don't know, is like again, like I find more of a comparison between um, the Mad Max universe and the Hills Have Eyes than I do the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. Interesting. Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre is its own thing completely, and like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't see it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, interesting list i'm glad i got to hear you talk about those um i didn't realize you didn't that i guess you mentioned it before but i guess you just don't talk about it as much that the hills have eyes one of your favorites um it's just not something you talk about no passionately or anything like it's that. it's it might be top 20 yeah i just love the build it, the the scene where mars and pluto i think are the two that where they sneak into their little camp and get into the trailer or into the rv mm -hmm. while they light bob on fire as a distraction so they can steal the baby and rape um lynn i guess is the one that mm -hmm. gets raped like the tension building up to that part where this family up to like a very specific moment still thinks that things might be okay yeah. and then everything just falls apart like it's the tension up to that point is so well crafted and it's like the setting's really unique i mean there's just so many things about it that to me sets it apart from other run-of-the-mill horror and especially with like cannibal horror because a lot of times that devolves into really like a racist you know parody of um like indigenous people or whatever and these are people that speak english and understand mm -hmm. english and have a code of like ethics almost and you know i mean it's violent and it's bloody and it's like backwards but it still exists and it's just really fascinating to me to like watch this movie and i i, I love the way it looks i love the way craven films it i think that big bob is one of the most deplorable characters in any horror movie right um and for someone that like you know belittles the guy that eventually becomes you know the protagonist of the movie like it's just it's it's really well done in its build yeah. and it's incredibly shocking when like that man dies you know and just tilts the whole movie on its head where you don't even know like what's going to happen after that and mm -hmm. it's like crazy to build up to that ending with it being um uh doug you know kind of coming out um coming out on top so right yeah yeah all right um 
Yeah. Well, good list. Um, we'll be back with the horror series the end of next month with 1978. Um, but in the meantime, uh, throughout September, we will also have two episodes coming out. Um, one focusing on the first two Clerks movies from Kevin Smith um, with our friend Jason Heaster. And then we will be um, uh, releasing a return slot episode of, of uh, talking about Terminator 2 um, on its uh, what 30th anniversary. Um, so um, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, hope you enjoyed. Have a good week. Uh, pl- thank you for all the downloads recently. And um, yeah, if, if you want to get in touch with us, Facebook, Instagram, Gmail, two guys five movies at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Deuces.